when you want to inspire the world and change the world, you recall those who helped you. Hey, welcome to Shirts and Ties, a podcast about education and culture. I'm Brian Miller. And I'm Casey Shirts. Casey, my brother, what are we chatting about today? It's our 25th episode. 25. With which is really next to nothing for true podcasters. But to be fair, but it's, it's not. Yeah. A buddy of mine just posted the other day, he's doing his 50th. So he's obviously doing better than us. Uh, but he said something like a v- vast majority of podcasts stop after 10 episodes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So 25 it, weeks it, strong. And honestly, this is much longer than I thought you'd stick around. So <laughs> about 23 beyond what I anticipated. <laughs> well, uh, very minor milestone, but I want to celebrate it anyway. And here's how I thought we could celebrate is by reflecting on some of our favorite teachers mm. and what made them great. And I think it lends to a nice conversation of what great teaching looks like. You yeah, and I, I love that idea. And I've been thinking about it since you referenced it a couple uh, days and weeks ago. And I think what I love most about it is as educators, deep down, we know that the bulk of our fruits of our labors will not come until years and years and years to come. But it's hard to remember that at times. You know, I love mowing lawns. I love doing dishes because I have a tangible, completed project in front of me. And education is not that. And so hopefully, I think that you and I have chatted about this, that hopefully what this can be to just a reminder to to ourselves and to our listeners that um, we have people in our lives that 20 years ago said something that impacted us and that we're still carrying with us and that made us the men that we are today. And so hopefully it's a reminder to, to our other teachers that our words and our actions matter even long after we're gone. Yeah, and and uh, for my first example, I, unfortunately, I think it's too late to to tell them things, but I still I, I want to do it anyway, you know. And sure. and it's years too late, but uh, some of these folks deserve this thank you that's coming for sure. Sure. So who do you got? Who's your first? Yeah. So my first one, and and this was nice too because I a few weeks ago we did a, a staff training and and we were talking a little bit about the struggles that students are having and some behaviors and and things like that and. And generally, teachers are feeling exhausted, worn down. And so I started our talk just by showing a picture of my fourth grade class and and telling a little story about my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Dennison, Mr. D, or as we called him, Mr. Donut. And uh, as I talk about each of these guys that I'm going to mention, I want to start with a, a quote, a literary quote that reminds me of them in some way. And so my first quote is from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. And the quote is, take nothing on its looks, take everything on evidence. There's no better rule. And the reason I chose that quote is in fourth grade, when I went to school, I looked poor. Mm. My hair wasn't cut. My clothes were tattered. I had, you know, bad teeth, bad, like just everything about me just was, was poverty. Hmm. But for Mr. D, Mr. Donut, Mr. Dennison, none of that mattered. He wasn't worried about what I looked like. He was more focused on who I was, what talents I might have, what abilities I might have. And, and, and just so you get a visual of this guy, this is a big man. And, you know, when you're in fourth grade, that means even more. Mm-hmm. He was a big, strong man, uh, graying hair, 
And, uh, you know, a, a couple of the core memories I have of him and the reason we called him Mr. Donut was every Friday he would bring donuts. And mm. I, I think there's something to that. Of course, we all love food and snacks, but I think subconsciously what we realized as his students is at some point outside of school time, he thought about us enough to, to go somewhere and pick up this little treat and bring this thing to us. And it just, it helped us feel a little valuable, mm. right? And, um, you know, I've shared a little bit, you know, when I was in fourth grade, uh, my father still was, you know, going through his struggles and still wasn't around. And so having Mr. Mr. D around, uh, it, it meant a lot to me. Mm. But, and, and I don't want to go on too long, but I do want to share what I think is the core memory that really tells you a little bit about who he was and what he did for me. You know, when I was in school, I, I didn't, there was no self-esteem there, right? Um, sure. And I think self-esteem comes from identity. And, and my identity at that point is, 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 you know, living in a house that's on the verge of being condemned, of being poor, right? That's my identity. So there's not much self-esteem that comes from that. So what he tried to do was shift that identity I had. And one of the things I remember is we had a school spelling bee. And there was just no way I was going to choose to participate in that. You know, I didn't feel like I had any talents. I didn't feel like I was particularly good at spelling or particularly good at school. But he encouraged me, said, no, this is something you're going to do. You really got to do this. You're going to be good at this. Uh, I really want you to do this thing. And he was pretty persistent. And he, there was something about the way he told me, the way he talked to me that made me start to believe, you know what? Maybe this is something that I can do. Mm. And so I went ahead and I signed up for that spelling bee. And mm. I'd love to say I finished first. I did not. <laughs> but I finished third. K-A-T, I'm out of here. <laughs> right. First word, I'm out. No. I, I, I think I finished like third or fourth. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was third. That's the way the way I remembered anyway. So like I made it a little ways and I did okay. And I spelled mm. some words right. And And I remember him celebrating my success with me. Yeah. And so that was a big deal. And, yeah. and if we want to tie it to what good teaching looks like, there's, there's truth in a teacher looking at a student and being able to estimate their level of skill to be able to correctly identify what they're capable of doing and maybe what the next thing is that they could learn, right? If you look at uh, the, the research from John Hattie, he lists that as one of the most important factors in student learning is the teacher look, you know, being able to look at the evidence and evaluate a student's skill and then offer them that next skill. And mm. so this was a, a pretty impressive thing that Mr. Dennison was able to do for me. Yeah. I, uh, recognizing uh, a skill, uh, I think is, is, is huge, right? That's like, I think I'm kind of thinking of this in like linear progression because one of the first steps and tasks that we have as administrators is recognizing a skill. Um, my story is going to be more towards that next step, which is not just recognizing the skill, uh, but then doing something about it and being very intentional about it. Um, and I do believe, and I want to remind myself often and teachers often of how important our words are, even words that we don't think mean a, a great deal. And we just kind of say them in passing. Now, I don't want to be like overly cautious so that we're so afraid to say anything, but I believe desperately in the power of positive words. Like you hear often like this, for every negative, you need to have three positives. And I don't know if I agree with that. What I actually more agree with is being more intentional in our positives. 
because our negatives are so specific oftentimes when we're critiquing somebody or being critiqued it's so specific in in its nature of here's what you're wrong here's where you're failing here's what you need to do about it and i read comments all the time for my for my teachers right as they put out their report cards the negatives are very specific they are struggling in math they're struggling to pay attention but the positives are but they're a great student right or they're just a joy to have in class i can't hang my hat on that but i can hang my hat on struggling in math right it's a very specific struggle and so wanting to be very intentional about the positives that i say and directly towards a child acknowledging the, a gift or a talent or something that they did or said and so mine comes from so my history of, of education was i was a terrible student not because i wasn't able i just hated school hated everything about it and if i didn't have coaches as my teachers i would not have graduated but i also learned fairly quickly that if i just didn't get any zeros i probably couldn't fail right and so my i mean i, I skated through with d's and c's just did the bare minimum. And then in my senior year, um, I only actually took an English class. I had enough credits and I just hated, I wanted to get out of, out of the building. So I, I ended up working at a um, local um, plumbing supply company and just went to school for English. That's the only credit that I needed. And we had to do a journal um, for Mr. Furman's class. And I specifically remember the one at um, Halloween Uh, That was our small little like prompt for the day. And I wrote a short story about, and the whole story is about this child in like this cave, right? It's dark and he's scared and he's huddling in this corner. And he he believes that um, if he just doesn't say anything, this monster won't recognize him, but he kind of knows that the monster's kind of eyeing him up and he's, you know, he sees the teeth and, and the eyes are just kind of like yellow and, and, you know, all of this imagery. And then the very last line I remember is Miller, what's the question to number two? Right. So it's the story of this kid afraid with this monster, but it's really just a kid in class. So I wrote the story and I turned it a couple of days later. He reads it to the students. He reads it to the class. And because it kind of has like this play at the very end, he's like, I'm going to read it again. And then he reads it again. And he says, Brian Miller wrote that story. And you literally saw the class turn around in shock. Like what? You wrote that story. And he said, Brian, you're a good writer. And I was never, ever told ever in my life that I was good at English, that I was a good writer. But he was very intentional, publicly even, of identifying me as something other than the misbehaving kid, the jock kid, the dumb kid, whatever all those things were that I was. I was all those things. He identified something in me. He saw something in me. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to see him as something different. I'm going to acknowledge him as something different. And I'm going to be very intentional about calling him that and giving him speaking into that. You said, what is this? The self-esteem comes from identity. Well, my identity up until that point was the jock, right? Captain of the football team, all that kind of stuff. And so much so that I was like wholly holistically interested in music and all that kind of stuff, but too afraid to do any of the artsy stuff because it didn't fit my identity of what a jock was. But this guy, for the first time, made me feel good and confident in something other than sport. And so that comment, it sat dormant for many, many years. It wasn't for another three to four years before I was sitting in a park in California with my, with my new bride and reevaluating life and said, and Mr. Furman, and that comment came to mind and I was journaling and I just said, I think I want to be an English teacher. Not only because I finally had this identity of being a writer and thinking that that was kind of cool too, 
but also like when you want to inspire the world and change the world, you recall those who helped you change and you want to be just like them. Right. So I wanted to be just like Mr. Furman. So uh, uh, like you, I have looked for him. He's retired. I don't even, I don't know where he is at. And I've reached out to a couple of my old buddies from high school um, and we can't locate him, but um, the power of a, a single intentional moment, identifying something and then doing something about it and saying it, that to me is, is a big, big deal in education. Largely too, because, sorry, I don't want to keep dragging this on. We, from ages, you know, from kindergarten to 12th grade, we have the most time with students. We actually probably know our students more so than their parents do because we see them all the time. We need to be uh, taking that that moment, that opportunity to stop a kid in the hallway, call out a kid in class. You are this. I see this in you, and I love it. So, it's a great story, man. And and it brings to mind a couple of things. And uh, so you and I are, are a couple of guys. We were really into sports, and there is. Uh, you know, when we had Kyrie on and we chatted with him, we talked about peer pressure mm. uh, and, and you talk about, you know, being a jock or, or whatever that might mean. And I do recall being in high school and, you know, I was a big baseball guy. That was my thing. But feeling like I had to act a certain kind of way because yep. that was going to be my identity. I hid the fact that I was good at school. And then when people would find out that I was, you know, National Honor Society or whatever, you know, they give me that that look. Because, you know, there was something, I don't Doesn't know. Doesn't fit the identity. Yeah, right. And then uh, to your point about intentional positives, you know, I think you had mentioned that in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've thought about that a lot. And uh, so I'll give you credit for that, which I hate doing. Uh, but I've even sort of debated that with like school psychs and stuff as we've talked about, well, what do we have to do at tier one for instruction to make sure that we are, you know, meeting kids' needs? Well, you have to give, you know, five to seven compliments for one every one negative and, and and the more i think about that is like i don't the probably the reason we have to give so many is because they are so superficial we yeah. could probably just give one or two really great purposeful intentional compliments yeah. and that would suffice but we don't do that we like nice job buddy or you know whatever yeah and i don't know why we don't is it is it harder is it awkward is it i, I don't know why we don't but you and i both know like i'd rather one fantastic drink or steak or whatever then then seven kind of mediocre things on my plate I, give me one really solid good thing i'd rather that so i don't know why we do this in, in terms of compliments is it just awkward is that why we don't do it yeah i don't know that's a good question i, I think some of it is just it's so easy to notice the negative that disrupts you and it's mm-hmm. a little harder to store the positive i don't know if that's right either because like long term we remember the great things more we may not process it in a moment, but mm. so I don't know. It's a good question. Hey, so here's my second one. So my second one is, uh, is Mr. Metzger. He was my high school shop teacher. I think we called it industrial arts at the time. And I actually, uh, I took shop for four years with him. So I had him as a teacher all through high school, mm. which is great. And I was probably the worst student he had, you know, cause shop is for, for, kids that are you know working on cars or or they're going to be a a welder or whatever and and i'm going to be honest i have very few talents so i was not great in that class but i absolutely love that class and and i told you i was going to have a quote for each of these guys so here's the quote for him this comes from a thousand splendid sons you see some things i can teach you some you learn from books but there are things that well you have to see and feel 
and and Mr. Metzger was the thing that I think that I loved the most about him was how little of the class was really about the content, which he had some freedom as the shop teacher, probably to walk it back a little bit. But everything that he did with us was to try to make a, a, a broader point about life and experience and about the things that you need to be able to do. And and so when I went in there every day, I was at least in some level inspired by him. Uh, and I have a couple of core memories. This one is is one of my favorites because it turned him into an absolute superhero in the minds of of us students in his class. So there was a, there was the classroom that we used and there were computers and things like that in there for, for doing CAD work or other things. And then just down the hall was the actual shop itself. And, and right across from it was the gym. And so it's mostly guys in the class because it is shop class, right? So we're, we're walking down the hall. We're supposed to be heading into the shop to get working on our projects. But we decide instead that we're going to go into the gym and we're going to goof around a bit. And we're all like jumping up, trying to grab the rim and that kind of thing, you know, trying to be cool. Well, a minute or two later, Mr. Metzger walks into the gym and we can tell he's a little upset because we've been goofing around. He, he wanted us to get to work in the shop. We should have had all our you know tools and everything out ready to go, but we weren't. So he walks in. And, and this guy is a, he, you know, at the time he's probably early forties, he's got this great feathered hair that looks straight out of the eighties, even though it's the, you know, mid nineties, he's wearing cowboy boots, jeans, belt buckle, button down shirt tucked in. It's all real tight on him. He's a thin dude. Well, he walks in and he sees what we're doing and he doesn't say a word to us. He picks up a basketball and is in his jeans and his cowboy boots. He takes two steps, jumps, dunks the basketball. He's probably only 6'1 or 6'2. And we're just like in awe. And then he just points at the shop. And we all just like, all right, here we go. And that was the kind of guy he was. He didn't tell us anything. Like we didn't know that he played basketball. Uh, I actually think he played basketball. I'm going to forget the guy's name, but it was a guy who played D1 basketball who uh, coached the Cincinnati Bearcats for a long time. But he, mm. he didn't tell us that until he needed to, mm. right? So he hung on to some things. Uh, he had other really great stories that he would tell us. He, he worked on, you know, in a, in a pit crew for race cars and things like mm. that. But he he held back on all these stories until Mysterious. he felt like there was yeah there was a lesson that needed to be told and so we were kind of in awe of this guy all the time. <laughs> but the other reason I I chose the quote that I did was again because he was always about life and I remember him telling this story because it was a class full of pretty rough kids. You know I was the only kid in there that was getting A's in in other classes although I was probably not getting A in his class. But you know there was a, a day where. You know, kid was acting all tough and he was, you know, ready to fight somebody. And he just, he just looked at the kid. He's like, Hey, listen, this can't be how you live your life. Cause guess what? No matter how tough you are, there's always someone tougher. You got to find a different way, you know, to get your point across. And it was just little things like that, mm. that kind of carried the day. And it, it was just so impressive, so impressive mm. how he, he read the moment so well, gave the kids exactly what they needed in that moment. And, uh, and so it was, it was just an awesome class to have for four years. We did not intentionally do this, but I do feel like the, the arc of our storytelling are the, if nothing else, the specific people or what they did about their classrooms that inspired us are they're, they're, they're synonymous here or they're parallel. 
because so you're using quotes mine are more like lessons that i've learned uh the first one being uh, be very purposefully intentional in, in your kindness or, or speaking into kids lives but i had a similar teacher only he was a professor um, and his name was mr paladino now dr paladino and he reminded me of this this quote that we've used a couple of different times that I've stolen from a friend of mine, which is don't be so consumed with the future of the child, but be consumed with the child here and now, right? Like, yes, we have this desire for what they can be and what they could be, uh, but we also just have them here and we have them now. So it's like that, this uh, shop teacher was kind of that, right? Like, I- I'm not going to worry so much about the the big picture stuff i have you here in my classroom which is probably why you guys related to him so well because he's he's with you now he's he's you guys are playing a basketball shoot i can i can play basketball i can show you up and shut you up and i'll go get get some work done kind of stuff like that's just that's i love that so here's what mr paladino did first and foremost he modeled amazing teaching to me so any any anything i ever did as a teacher the way I taught, the way I used uh, media, the way I used music, the way I used pictures, quotes, you know, bringing in all these different multi-sensory sort of ideas and, and, and whatever it might be, it all came from him. He he was, uh, he's a history major uh, by, by passion, but I had him for education courses and him and I would have these fantastic debates about, because he's a huge literature guy. And I'm like, why aren't you an English teacher? He's like, because I feel like the best way to teach literature is through history. And so I would say, no, the best way to teach history is through uh, English class and literature. Like we just had these fantastic debates all the time. Uh, so he just wasn't a passionate man. He was, he made, um, truly, he made learning cool, like to be edu- to be educated, to have ideas. And it wasn't because he was haughty or it wasn't because he was arrogant. He could just invest so much in any conversation because he cared about knowledge and understanding the people in front of him. And so there was a quote that I heard many, many years ago that, um, that knowledge is the ability to sit with anybody and have an intelligent conversation. And oftentimes what that means is asking intelligent questions, right? And so Mr. Palladino learned so much and knew so much because he asked so many freaking good questions because he was invested in the person that he was with. He didn't ever see his students as people that needed to be taught something. Oftentimes he saw them as resources and people. And let's have a conversation. Your ideas are quality. Your your passions are just as um legitimate as as his own and so he just was learning all the time but here's where he had a moment that to me was again changed my kind of trajectory because um i'm like two years into university here and so if you can remember my, my previous story i am 12 years of being the dumb jock learning very little suddenly i have this epiphany uh that i want to be an english teacher well now i am like way behind on so much on on knowing how to the mechanics of writing knowing how to study knowing how to be a student all of that stuff i'm just so behind so i'm two or three years into university and struggling with identity and struggling with feeling like an idiot struggling with you know i'm sitting in this classroom with paladino and and all these other students who just can have these fantastic discussions and bring in all these resources of history and science and whatever and mr paladino for whatever reason i found interest in me and and saw something in me. And so him and I started connecting and he said one day, Hey, I I meet with another professor, a couple of the professors. We meet on like Thursday mornings in this classroom and we just bring an idea and then we just talk about it. And he invited me to this. So now I show up and it's me and these three 
professors, all of whom I have and all of whom I have the deepest uh, respect for. And kind of like how you and I do here, one of them brings a topic, brings an idea, and he writes it on the whiteboard. And they spend 30 minutes talking about it. And I just kind of show up for a couple of times. And then Mr. Palladino does the next step, which is, why aren't you talking? Why aren't you sharing anything? I'm like, I, I can't, I, you know, I'm just kind of like, you guys are the Mount Rushmore of thinkers in our university. I'm not saying anything. No, 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 no. So then he in, in, inspires me and encourages me to speak. And we all know, you and I know, um, whether it be as, as children or even as adults, when you say something and you're humored, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, you know, and then you kind of move on, right? Like, we hate that feeling. Whenever I spoke, I doubt that it was great. I was taken seriously. So from him and from the others, taken seriously, questioned, pushed back on at times. But my answers, my thoughts, they went up on the board just alongside his. And it was a beautiful moment to me of, again, somebody kind of looking beyond my my very insecure identity that I'm portraying and saying, no, I, I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to, I'm going to come into your space because I see something in you and I need to kind of pull that out. And he never talked about what I was going to be in the future. He invested in who I was right then and there. Um, and so uh, I feel like I've tried to do that at times. Um, and when I have with other students, that's the most joyful, meaningful, purposeful, long lasting relationships that I've built with students is when I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be a Mr. Palladino right now. I'm going to invite them in and we're not going to talk about the future. We're just going to talk about right now. And I'm going to treat them as an equal person. You're treating them with the ultimate respect to say that your thoughts and ideas, the things you want to share, your own experiences, like I value who you are right now. I'm not valuing based on what I think you might become. No, no, no. I value as you are, as you enter this space. And I, I think that's something we should all do with our students. And don't you think as at times it's easy for teachers to walk into a space and have a hierarchy sort of thinking, right? I'm the teacher, you're the student. And so we 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 even borrow knowledge or borrow, what's that, that, that phrase, uh, um, borrowed intelligence, right? Sure, I, I'm maybe a master at English. I'm an English teacher. But because I'm the teacher, I begin to think that I'm the master at all sorts of things. And I, so I, I need to give you wisdom on all sorts of things. But really, no, like this kid coming in, they have so much knowledge and wisdom and understanding well beyond my capacity because that's them and that's their experiences and that's where they live. And so being able to at times say and convince ourselves we are fully equal here and I can learn from these kids just as much as they can learn from me. Yeah. And you talk about this history professor, right? You said, or he loved history. He was an educator. He was a history professor. professor. But yes. So uh, my final teacher that I want to share was actually my, one of my college professors, uh, Dr. Michael Flam. And he was my history professor for many of my classes. And he ended up being my advisor. And the, the quote I want to share, and then I'll get into a little bit of the story about how he became so important in my life was, so it, it comes from a book called the, the Things They Carried. It's Tim O'Brien, very well known, uh, mm-hmm. and, and actually one of my all-time favorite books. And I don't think this was one of the first books I read that he assigned, uh, because I think this was probably uh, an upper-level course that he assigned this book in. But there were lots of books that we read. And they were always great, but this one was incredible. And so here's the quote. Stories are for joining the past to the future. 
stories are for those late hours in the night when you can't remember how you got from where you were to where you are. Stories are for eternity. When memory is erased, when there is nothing to remember except the story. Hmm. And uh, I chose that one because what I discovered when I went into his classes is that there are stories that we can tell, stories of history that become like a shared experience that help explain why humanity is where it is and how it can get better and the struggles that we've had along the way. And so prior to taking a 100 level, a low level history course with, with Dr. Flam, I was actually an accounting major, right? So w- when you grow up in poverty, like I did, like sometimes you just don't know that there's lots of options out there. Mm. I was good at math. I knew accounting was a thing. I get to college. Well, that's probably what I'll, I'll do. I was miserable. It was mm-hmm. awful. I like people. I like to serve people. I like to help people. And that just wasn't going to happen as an accountant. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little desperate and I walk in, I have to take a, you know, humanities courses. So I got, it's a it, it required, got to go take a history class. I go into this class and on the first day there's Dr. Flam. And it's exactly what you would imagine a college professor of history to look like, right? He's, he's got his tweed jacket on, he's got elbow patches, He's a little bit cool, but a little bit bookish, right? He's got that combination going. And right away, he eases into this conversation. It's not a lecture. He just eases into this conversation about history. And he draws us all into it. And it was just absolutely amazing. And when I left that class that day, I immediately went to my advisor. I said, I want to be a history teacher. That's what I want to do. Uh, And then the next day, I went to Dr. Flame. I said, will you be my advisor? And he said, sure, you bet. Absolutely. Hmm. I switched all my classes, started taking education classes, and that was the direction I headed. Hmm. And it was awesome. But but here's the, the core memory of him as a teacher. In addition to being a great storyteller, which I used to always tell my students that history was was the cool English class, right? So we're gonna no. do a <laughs> we're gonna do a lot of English <laughs> things. We're gonna learn history as well. But but I remember this, and this actually um this was my senior year, and it was I had written the first draft of my senior thesis. And he had done much for me before then, but it was largely what I just told you, just learning to tell this story of history, to draw people into it. And I did a lot of what I did was based on what he did. And he was very helpful. He was, you know, he came and observed me when I was student teaching. He he was awesome in that regard. But this story is an important one. So I, I turn in that senior thesis and then I schedule a time to meet with him. And I go into his office and I sit down and then he he lays before us my thesis you know it's all printed out and and he s- starts to open it up and it just looks like a murder scene there is so much red on this thing and i am immediately like just you know my emotions drop and i'm defeated and then he starts talking and he's like he he's he's both giving me direction on how to improve this thing, but also celebrating the hard work I'm doing in a way that I didn't even know was possible. So with everything he's telling me that could be better, he's he's saying, like he's convincing me that not, not that it needs to be better, but that I can do better. Like mm-hmm. me personally, like he's like, you have so much talent and you didn't show it here. Do this thing. And Hmm. so we flip through dozens of pages of red ink. And somehow when I left his office that day, 
I stood taller. Mm. I didn't, you talk about not knowing you could write. I didn't know. I, I mean, this, I went from somebody who showed up into college, not knowing how to craft a, a, a you know, a, a paragraph probably, let alone mm-hmm. write a, a 50 or 60 page senior thesis. And mm-hmm. so there was something about, and I, I think it maybe ties back to that, the intentional positives. Like mm. he was very intentional. He he told me things I needed to improve, but he was always also intentional about saying, here's what talent you have. Here's how you can, you know, really show that talent off. And I just loved it. It was a great experience. It reminds me of our episode of Mary Jo Fresh, where she said, do you remember what her definition of assessment was? To sit beside. Yeah. And that's what he's doing with you. He's sitting beside you and assessing your work uh, and assessing you essentially and saying, no, I know you you got more in you. You got, he had to unlock that thing that was preventing you from putting on the paper that, that confidence that was just kind of being held back. And he assessed you in the moment and said, you're, you're better than this. Stand taller than this. Uh, That's pretty fantastic imagery of assessment. Yeah. And it, it was, and I, that line, you know, defining assessment as sitting beside, I've now used with my staff a lot. So thank you, Mary Jo, for that. And, and it is tied to, you know, I, I think about that moment uh, with Dr. Flam and, and I, I, I think it's a powerful image because it is a reminder of what teaching looks like. It is, it is you working with a kid, helping that kid grow and become whatever thing they can to really help develop that self-esteem to develop that identity to be more complete yeah that is uh that is an an impressive skill that i'm sure he honed over time but i also got to believe it's part of his person but we spend we education spend so much time on the act of assessment that it no longer carries the connotation of sitting beside and as a child walking away feeling taller assessment often children feel either affirmed in, in, in who they are because they did really, really well or affirmed in who they are that, yeah, I knew I was going to bomb it. Uh, and, and it's not this pushing forth of even like, I love that phrase you used. I walked out standing taller, even though it was a murder scene on this desk. <laughs> so I've thought about this a lot, especially as in our building, we've talked about behaviors. The truth is very often a relationship between a student and a teacher breaks down at the moment that the teacher says, I need this work done, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably the most common breaking point. But I think some of what the problem is, is in the student's mind, the only reason that you're choosing to engage with me or to talk to me is because you care about this assignment and this content. But if if we assess in the way that's described by Mary Jo, if we sit beside, if we give feedback, if we talk to a kid about um, their skills and what they can work on, all of a sudden it's not about the assignment, it's about the kid. And I think that's going to be the best way to save that relationship if that kid knows that when you're engaged with them, that it's about them. It's not about the assignment. Yeah, that's a good story. It's a great story. Uh, what's his name again? Dr. Michael Flam. You going to reach out to him? I am. I'm absolutely going to send this thing. You know, if the edit turns out okay and we don't sound like buffoons, <laughs> I'm going to send it his way. Just give him a big thank you. Good. Uh, all right. Here's my last one. And I'm going to cheat because it's it's not one person. It's three people. And truly, I have shared so many times uh, as a teacher, but especially as a principal, the importance of 
the group you hang with. And so my most influential third teacher is Matt Hard, Eric Trager, and Casey Schertz. When I first became a teacher and moved to Gillette, and I was an arrogant dude uh, with his degree in hand, and I thought I was going to change the world. And I came into this space. You and I were, I think you were like, eh, about eight, 10 years into your profession at that point. Yeah. Yep. Chogger had been there forever. And then Matt was new uh, to the district as a, as a tech guy. And w- however, some way, the four of us started hanging out. I don't think it was initially it was like once every now and now and again in Chogger's room and he would make us tea and we would just kind of BS. Uh, and I was there for two years, but by, I think my entire second year, we were consistently, if not daily, for sure, weekly meeting in Trogger's room. And I remember, and I've shared this often, but it was for myself, new teacher. I learned again. So I had a Paladino kind of pushing me in this, like, here's what it means to kind of have good conversations to kind of be, to, to wrestle with ideas and to wrestle with literature. Like he was that guy. But then I'm in a room with a bunch of guys who we're going to tell inappropriate jokes. We're going to talk about sport, but we always came back to education and it was never ever truly. And I don't mean this. I don't want to speak in hyperbole here, but we never rested on the negatives of our profession, of our students, of our bosses. We might acknowledge it. But the conversation, and I don't think I said much, and I still think when I'm in the presence of when it's us four, I don't say much. Uh, I just kind of sit there and listen uh, because the conversation uh, on, on how we engage with students and how we teach and how we live life. And when you guys get into politics, then, man, I'm just a, a fly on the wall who just needs to sit there. But it, it was inconsistently is, which is why I think I'm always drawn to, to bringing us four back together. Because it just was the most influential time of how to become a good and quality educator. Um, it was a manifestation of here's how we can take all these things in the world, all these ideas, and wrestle with them truly and not get sucked into this muck and mire of gossip and complaining and whining. But what are we going to do about it? Like, let's wrestle with it. But then what are we going to do about it? How is this going to impact my classroom? What does good teaching look like? What does good assessment look like? What is hanging out with kids? I mean, I don't, we don't agree. You and I don't agree on a lot of things, but I never felt like in our disagreement, it was, it was bad or it was negative or it was destructive. It was heated at times, but always beneficial and always constructive. And so I got to find these guys, you got to send them, you know, somehow tell them, thank you for this. I don't know if I... They sound familiar. Can't quite place who they might be, though. Uh, uh, truly, truly. I mean, think about that. We lived together for two years, um, and that's 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 my one of my tightest group of people. Is that four? And and yeah. I think largely it was because of those moments that we spent together, really finding true and meaningful depth of conversation and purpose. You know, uh, it got me a little emotional, honestly. It's, it's been a minute since that happened. And and I think all of us have probably at some point said out loud how much that meant to us and where we were in life and what our next steps were. So it was kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, I think in the end, like 
part of it was we never set out to change each other's minds. We really just set out to sharpen our own and, and to bring some clarity and focus to the work that we were trying to do. And and we had a, a safe place and, and we had the opportunity to laugh a, a lot out loud. And we had the opportunity to say things, even make mistakes in the things that we said and uh, and get a little pushback and have to sharpen those thoughts and ideas. So yeah, that was, it, it was a, it was a heck of a crew and, I, and I'm glad uh, that all of you guys are still around. So at least in some form or another, all doing different things. I mean, Trogger's doing the same thing. He's never going <laughs> to not do that. But the rest of us kind of doing different things. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Creature habitat. So, uh, anyways, so Casey, uh, thanks for that, man. Truly, uh, that was yeah. a pretty special time. And I, in all of our moving around since then, there's a part of me that just kind of always wonders, I wish I would would have stayed. I wonder, wonder what would have happened. Just so you know, uh, when you left here, you had a framed picture with a Robert Frost quote on it, right? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you may not be able to see this, but there it is. Oh, yeah. Holy still crap. Got yeah. Still got it. I made that frame. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, man. It means even more to me now. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't, that's I didn't realize cool. you had made that. Yeah. So cool stuff, man. Um. All right. Well, what's your takeaway? <laughs> <laughs> this kills me every time. I, I do have a couple of things here. One of them is I, I think we we just cannot forget how important these relationships are for our students. I know sometimes we get caught up in it. And we have a lot of students, but but pausing a moment to make sure that that student feels seen and heard by you and that you you open up and engage with them. I think it's powerful because that's what all, all three of these individuals, what that's what they have with me is there's there was something about that relationship um where I felt seen and heard and noticed and 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 it it impacted my life tremendously because of that. The other thing though is is your point that you you said and and you've said it before, but it was important in this conversation today, which is being very intentional about the things that we say to our students, especially those positive things. Um, mine was the the self-esteem comes from identity. And I, I think what I love about that is, again, thinking of Kyrie and his peer pressure comment, um, understanding, I think in, our, in that conversation with Kyrie too, we talked a little bit about how quickly as adults we forget what it's like to be a teenager or to be an adolescent. And so when I think of an, in an administrative role and the, the discussions I have with teachers with their struggles with students or the discussions I have with students and their parents, we are wrestling with, and I, and this is, I got to wrestle with this because we are frustrated with, I think the manifestation of this self-esteem, right? So whatever their self-esteem is negative, positive, you know, for you, it was, I'm this poor kid who's not going to do well in, in academics. And so you hit it for me. It was this, erratically insecure kid who needed to to be overly um, aggressive in his demeanor and, and posture because I'm just really insecure in who I am. Um, but I'm also this jock who's captain of the football team. So I need to I need to I need to somehow manifest that and 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 fit that mold. And so what I'm what I want to wrestle with is we see the self-esteem or we see this identity but that's not who they are. They're, they're just as confused as well. And so if I'm so concerned about, again, like almost like this idea of chopping off the limbs of the tree, that's the right, that's what I'm seeing in this child. That's not really getting to the root of the issue. And so 
reminding myself, reminding my staff of they, they're struggling with identity or they know their identity and they don't like it and they want something different. And so they're struggling with their self-esteem. And so trying to parse these things uh, together, trying to pull them apart, I, I got to wrestle with this a little bit because which one do we deal with most? Which one is seen most? And how does it impact our relationships with these kids? When at the root of it all, it is like to your professors and your teachers and the ones that I shared, they were able to somehow see past all of that fog and say, this is the person radically incomplete just in need of some affirmation, just in need of somebody to come along and to say, hey, man, your your thesis statement is a mess. But it's not because you're a mess. It's just because there's something in you. I got to get out. of. I got to get out. Yeah, well, and, and that's it, man. And, and I, so much appreciation to Mr. Denison, Mr. Metzger and Dr. Flam. Just awesome dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, that was good. Uh, happy. Happy 25. Yeah. Is that what? What do I get you? Uh, you have yet to do anything. No gifts. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, on our relational anniversary, on our 25th anniversary of our episodes, uh, I can only assume that you are saving up all this yeah. money for my It's going to be huge. Birthday. Yeah, it's going to be huge. Yeah, someday. Huge. Can't wait. <laughs> it's going to be Super huge. expensive. <laughs> all right, brother. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the prompt of let's just celebrate some people around us. Uh, next week, I think I'm on. Yeah? Yep. Maybe. Uh, all right. So until then, my brother, do great things. And keep knocking. All right. Peace. See ya. We were just two friends hanging out, sharing ideas, talking about things that matter in this life. How to make a change, how to make it right Gonna start a podcast to change the world We'll speak our minds and hearts Let our voices be heard Gonna make a podcast and make a difference We'll be the change we want to see And nothing's gonna stop us now Talk about the issues need to be addressed Politics to human rights, we'll give it our best We'll have guests on our show, experts in their field Learn and grow together, make our message heard Gonna start a podcast and change the world Speak our minds and hearts Let our voices be heard Gonna start a podcast Make a difference We'll be the change we want to see And nothing's gonna stop us now